The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In our last episode, we told you about Louisa May Alcott and the work that made her famous. The book for girls she didn't think she could write, Little Women. Today, we might say that what she left out of that book is as interesting as what she put in. Alcott and her family were abolitionists, they were station masters on the Underground Railroad, and Louisa May herself traveled to Washington, D.C. during the Civil War to serve as a nurse for Union soldiers. And then, a few years later, back home in Massachusetts, she set her novel during the Civil War period, with no mention of the word abolition or emancipation or slavery or slaves. Father is off where the fighting is, the girls say, vaguely. Whether this was an artistic choice, an unconscious bias or blindness, or an instance of a writer giving in to actual or anticipated editorial or market pressure is not clear, at least not to me. But what is clear is this, for all its strengths, Little Women gives us only a partial picture of America, a thin slice of girlhood at that time. That's where remixing comes in to give us new stories, to round out our understanding of history, and to let us revisit and rethink what we and the rest of the world have been reading. We're joined by Bethany C. Morrow today, who has written a novel called So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. Her book has four sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, also coming of age during the American Civil War, but they're not white girls living in New England. Instead, they're four black sisters in the freed people's colony of Roanoke Island. Book list says, quote, Morrow's ability to take the lingering stain of slavery on American history and use it as a catalyst for unbreakable love and resilience is flawless. That she has remixed a canonical text to do so only further illuminates the need to critically question who holds the pen in telling our nation's story. End quote. Speaking of holding the pen and telling our nation's story, or writing it, we might say, we will also have a visit from playwright Scott Carter, whose play Discord looks at three historical figures united by a common impulse. All three advance their own version of the Gospels. In the first of three installments, Scott joins us to tell us about the deeply conflicted Thomas Jefferson to hear how he edited the Bible with a razor blade while he was in the White House. What exactly was he objecting to, and what was he trying to accomplish? Bethany C. Morrow and Scott Carter, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Two great guests today. We're going to do more of this, actually. We'll have an appetizer and then a main course. We've got Mike Palindrome teed up for one of these appetizers, and our Scottish friend Margot Livesey is going to participate as well. Little morsels of literature to tide you over until that main course lands on the table. Today, our literary menu has a strong historical flavor as we look back to Thomas Jefferson before traveling forward to the Civil War era. Jefferson is the powerfully gifted, hugely important, and deeply flawed individual. He's the embodiment of America, I think. More and more, it seems that way to me. All the ideals, all the promise, all the hope, it's all there, built on words, or the author of America, as Scott says in our talk, quoting Christopher Hitchens. His pen, Jefferson's pen, wrote the Declaration of Independence. His intelligence was in some ways unmatched, but he was also completely blind in other ways, or maybe I should say blinkered rather than blind. He saw reality, saw facts presented before him, but could not accept the truths or the consequences of those facts and he turned himself into an intellectual pretzel in order to try to reconcile the irreconcilable, as America often did and does. That's the American story, too. 
That's the other side of the coin. Check out our episode on Phyllis Wheatley in our archives to see this in action with Mr. Jefferson and to see how it played out when he assessed Ms. Wheatley, the first African-American to publish a book of poetry. We will have more on this next time as well. But, and this is why Jefferson is still worth considering in spite of his personal flaws, the words he wrote contain in them a brighter possibility than he and his generation put into practice. It was left to future generations to aspire to that promise and ideals, the ideals of his words, to move America from that world to a better one. Jefferson wanted a better world than the one he was born into. He also wanted a better religion, at least in his view, or a better gospel anyway. So let's start there. Scott Carter and Thomas Jefferson after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Scott Carter, here to give us part one of a three-part look at his new play, Discord, The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy. Scott Carter, welcome back to the History of Literature. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Jack. So let's start with the earliest of the three, Thomas Jefferson, third president, author of the Declaration of Independence. Where was he in life when he sought to create a new gospel? And the creation of a gospel is what historically unites these three people. Yeah. When this play first came out in 2014 in Los Angeles, people would say to me, why don't you do one about this person, this person, and this person? I'd say, because they didn't write a gospel. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Shirley MacLaine took me to lunch. She went to a reading and then she said, I've got to talk to you. And so she took me to lunch in Malibu, ordered a bottle of wine, put her on the table between us, began drinking. And she was lobbying me to add Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton. And I said, well, I never really, he did some religious writing, but he never wrote a full gospel. That's what these three people did. And that's why they are gathered together. And so interestingly enough, Jefferson was the first one I came across Mm -hmm. and actually came across them in chronological order. Oh, right. So Jefferson's the first one I come across. And it's because I have this near-death experience with asthma in 1987. Mm -hmm. I come out of it with this sense of, I need to be investigating the big questions of life, the notions of spirituality that I have ignored up until this point. And so I just started following anything that anybody put out there for me. And one of the things that happened early on was I was watching a Bill Moyers program called World of Ideas. Uh And he had as his guest that night a minister of, I think, All Saints Presbyterian or Unitarian maybe, on Madison Avenue in New York, Forrester Church, who was the son of Frank Church. Frank Church was a senator from Idaho. Hmm. And he had received, because the Jefferson Bible was discovered by the public at large, not until the end of the 1800s, and the the Library of Congress bought it for $500, the actual book. Hmm. And so when a representative from Iowa found out about this existence, 
he passed a bill to have Congress do 9,000 photocopies and that they would be handed to incoming senators and congressmen. Mm. And so Frank Church got one. When he came home, he gave it to his son. And it completely transformed the son's life to the point where he became a minister. Wow. And so as he's talking to Bill Moyers about this, he tells he talks about the Jefferson Bible and how he's edited a new version of it. So that was the first I'd heard about the Jefferson Bible. And what was amazing about it is that Jefferson, well, he did two versions of it. The first was called um, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And the he had two different titles for the, and they were a little bit different um, in their scope. In the first one, he what he did was he just went through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he went through with a razor blade. Yeah. And he needed to get two copies of each of the of the Bibles. Front and back. Because he yeah. needed the front and back page. <laughs> right. He was going to slice it up. He was going to slice it up. And then what he had is a blank book. And so then he took all that he'd cut out of, of these different Bibles, these eight Bibles, and he then put them into a blank book in one narrative. So for instance, you'd read, let's say, three verses from Matthew, then there'd be two from John, then there's one from Luke, and then there's six more from Matthew. But what was he trying to do? Well, he was trying, you know, you have to remember that he is, in the words of Christopher Hitchens, he is the author of America. And I know that whenever we begin to talk about Jefferson now, we need to state up front. Right. Yes, he was a slave owner. He owned generally about 200 slaves at a time, a total of about 600 during the course of his life. Many of them he inherited both from his father because he was the um, oldest son and Virginia had the principle of primogenitor. And then his wife's father died and he gained several dozen more slaves there. And this is abhorrent. There is no defense for it. Yeah. And as my friend, the historian John Meacham says, if you admire, let's say, Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee, it can only be because they defended slavery. But if you admire Jefferson or Madison or Monroe or others, you admire them despite the fact that they were slave owners. And I am of the belief that there is no defense for the continuation of, of that institution. However, it does not discount every contribution to the founding of America every unique contribution to the founding of America that Jefferson made. Right. And so much of, of what he did was brilliant. And we would be foolish to throw that out because of this abhorrent and undeniable fact in his life. So what he's doing is throughout his life, he is a child of the Enlightenment. And the notion of the Declaration is really his distilling into a few principles the groundwork of the Enlightenment, and then trying to apply it to an actual working, functioning government. Right. So he is in the White House when he gets this first idea. And it's not the first idea he has. The first idea he has is he tries to convince a few other scholars to do it first. To revise the Bible? Uh, well, not the entire Bible, just the first four just the books of yeah. the New Testament, just the Gospels, just the places where Jesus is front and center. Right. And they say no. Then he also does a little pamphlet for himself that compares the morals of Jesus with, let's say, Socrates and Epictetus and other Greek and Roman philosophers. So then finally in the White House, and he says over the course of three nights, and he says it wasn't my task was not hard, but he said that separating what he believed to be the valid verses of the Gospels versus what he considered to be verses later put in by mischievous priests. Ah. He believed that separating what was genuinely Jesus from the imposter Jesus that the priests had invented was like pulling out diamonds in a dunghill. Yeah. And he was getting the diamonds and putting all the diamonds together in a book. Can you give us an example of something that he would have thought was the authentic Jesus and something that he would have thought was added later? Well, all the miracles he thinks oh, are added later. Okay. So he does not believe in the virgin birth. Right. He does not believe in the resurrection. He does not believe in anyone being convinced of the wisdom of Jesus because Jesus performed a magic trick. Right. So walking on water or... All that. All that's yeah. gone. And, and further, furthermore, a lot of this comes out of his complete respect 
for the laws of the universe. So he's really kind right. of a, a, a grand design theist. Yeah. So he he believes that, for instance, the notion in the Old Testament of the sun stopping in the middle of the sky, that he said, well, if that happened, then all the lands would have rushed into one another and all the houses and buildings would have been toppled because it would have meant that the earth would have stopped spinning on its axis and that would have been a natural disaster. Yeah. So he rejects it. What he loves are the parables and the precepts. And yeah. so what I would point people to as what he embraced almost without any revision was the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. I was just going to say, and Christ as a, or Jesus, I guess I should say, as a radical humanist. Radical humanist. And he called him the proponent of the best system of morals known to man. Mm. Mm-hmm. Turn, turn the other cheek. Right. And do unto others. The Good Samaritan. The story of of the of the three talents, the story of the of the woman at at the well, or, or rather the woman caught in adultery, all of these are things he valued, and he stops his gospel where Jesus uh, dies, mm-hmm. and has he, he cries aloud, and then Jesus dies. Yeah, still a great story, even without the resurrection. I mean, I know that that might sound blasphemous to people, but the. The, the tragedy of the way that—I mean, I assume he has the crucifixion in there. He has the crucifixion because he thinks that's a historical fact. What he yeah. doesn't believe is that after three days, the stone was moved from the tomb that he was in, right. and he ascended and then later appeared to his disciples and showed them the scars and holes in his hands and then ascended into heaven. Right. He doesn't believe that. Now, I'm thinking of another writer, Dostoevsky, another Christian, who— in his famous chapter on Christianity, said, in order to have a successful church and a successful religion, you need miracle, mystery, and authority, that that is what people will will respond to. And so it kind of begs the question, if Jefferson's gospel were the gospels, would that be sufficient for people to believe in this, have this guide them, but also believe in it as a religion. I think that he would have wanted the kind of people who he thought America was built for. Mm. In other words, one of his chief desires throughout his career was universal education. Yeah. And, and he thought that the more educated people are, then the less they're going to be governed by fear and superstition. Right. And they'll they'll reason their way to these good values and these teachings. Right. E- exactly. They will embrace them because they will see the wisdom of them. And that wisdom is leading them to a better life. Now, he was also very aware of the political climate and that he had gotten in trouble for letters that he had written about his notions of faith. And so after a while, he didn't share anything with the public. He shared for instance, his gospel with a few friends, but he would ask them to read it over a few nights, get it back to him. He didn't make copies. And uh, he didn't even let his family know about this. Mm. And so this is when he's in the White House. And just imagine he's in the White House. He would answer the door himself. Yeah. And and there are very few people there. His secretary is Meriwether Lewis. Yeah. So he's assisting him all day. And Jefferson would often, he, he had a, a pet bird that perched on his shoulder. So, and he often answered the door with the bird perched on his shoulder and in his stocking feet. Yeah. And, and one of his chief beliefs was that the notion of a Republic is going to be the hallowing of the common person. He detested the notion of monarchy. It's why I think for Jefferson, Catholicism and having a Pope is analogous to a monarchy and having a King. And I think he thought that if America, because Americans during the first few years of the establishment of America, a lot of people were nostalgic for the king. A lot of people thought, well, we just, King George was a bad king, but that doesn't mean all kings are bad and he could do, do well with a good king. And he wanted to move away from all of that. And so therefore he wanted to have each person find God on their own. And the way one would do that is through the philosophy of Jesus. Interestingly, in Charlottesville, there was one church house, but there were four different religions, and they alternated Sundays of a month. 
for when they would get to hold their services. And he actually contributed funds to all of them. Mm. And he said that he considered himself to be a sect of one. Yeah. And that he was like a, a bumblebee flitting from hive to hive, taking the best ideas. Yeah. And, and that, that was how he thought. So now when he, in 1809, he leaves the White House, he goes back to Monticello, never returns to Washington. And many years later, he decides to do a more elaborate version of this little, of what he called his wee little gospel. And what he did was he now got eight Bibles because he had to get two copies in, he wanted to do four different languages. So he did Life and Morals of Jesus is the second one. Life of Jesus of Nazareth is the first one. And so as you open it up, and I've actually seen the book at the Smithsonian. It's at the Smithsonian, not the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress has the Jefferson, all the book collection. They don't have the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible's at the Smithsonian. They did a showing of it. They did a restoration of it. They did a showing of it a few years ago, and I went to Washington to see it. But what, what happens is in the four columns, he'll have English, French, Latin, and Greek. And so you can read one verse across in the four different languages, or if, like me, you only speak English, you can read down the column in English. But one of the things that one of the restorers mentioned is that in all of this razor cutting that he was doing, there was not one time where his razor touched ink. Oh, that yeah. it was always in the margin. He was so careful. So respectful. Yes. And the, well, this was also his background as a, an architect and a builder. Mm, yeah. He always have to be precise about things. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so then he doesn't tell his family about this. The first book, just in English, is lost. That's gone. The way that scholars have begun to have been able to tell what was in it was because they found the books that he cut things out from. Mm -hmm. The second book still exists, owned by the Smithsonian. And um, anyway, he kept it in the nightstand by his bed. And in those days, people would go to sleep pretty much after the sun went down. And they would often wake up in the middle of the night, be up for a little while, and then go back to sleep. And he would sleep. He had an alcove bed and there was a clock at the end of the bed. And whenever, as soon as in the morning he could see the hands on the clock, that's when he would get up. And then the first thing he would do is he would soak his feet in a bucket of ice. <laughs> and if you go to Monticello today, you can see the tracks of the bucket of ice where, where it was moved there and moved away. And those tracks are still there beneath his bed. And so it wasn't until after he died that his family found it. Now, six months after he died, he died July 4th, 1826. Mm -hmm. And within six months, his family lost Monticello. He was heavily in debt at the time of his death, and they held it on, held on to it for a little while. They kept the Bible in their family, and then, as I mentioned before, sold it to the Smithsonian. And then it kind of became known and kind of got published after that. Mm. So, but, but he never wanted, in fact, this unites all three of these texts. None of the three were published in the author's home country during his lifetime. Hmm. I wonder if there is something also about being writers, that when they look at a text, it was something that they couldn't resist getting their hands in and, and revising it, or there was something aesthetically about the overlapping or, you know, that it that they thought it could use an edit, whether it was for principled reasons or just because they were used to shaping words and moving things around and trying to to put some order into things, if that was part of it. But we need to move on. So I wanted to ask you whether you could say in terms of your your play has Jefferson with Dickens and Tolstoy. In terms of their personality or temperament, how does Jefferson compare with those two? How does he fit for you as a character in the play? Is he the, the bomb thrower? Is he the quiet, rational one? Or what did you find about him that you could use to make this hypothetical interaction come to life? Well, the setting of the play is one in which these three people find themselves trapped in a room, a kind of bardo or limbo. And they think that their path to salvation depends upon convincing the other two that they are that the other two are wrong mm -hmm. about their theology and that I am right. And throughout the play, Jefferson is the one who actually is providing the structure. Mm. He's actually the one who's saying, why don't we think about this next? Oh, yeah. But he's doing it very quietly. He has some of the qualities that <clears throat> I've told directors 
of the play that he's kind of a combination of Mr. Spock mm-hmm. and Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and Ashley Wilkes, the character that Leslie Howard played in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so he is very quiet in the Continental Congress, and he's the one who's remembered as the key member of the Continental Congress because he's the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and yet there is no record of him speaking. Hmm. In his life, he only gave a handful of speeches. And instead of delivering his State of the Union address as required by the Constitution, he would write it out in letter form and have it delivered to the Congress. He wouldn't re- he wouldn't go read it. He had a weak voice. He had a bit of a stammer. And he just was not confident at all. But also, he was just this incredibly cerebral person mm-hmm. who was thinking so much. And in the uh, miniseries, of John Adams that HBO did and Tom Hanks produced. Stephen Delane is the actor who played Jefferson, and I think he completely nails him. Hmm. Okay, well, the play is called Discord. The author is Scott Carter. It's streaming from November 4th through December 19th at the Philadelphia Lantern Theater. Scott Carter, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure. Okay, there we go, turning the page. As I said, words mattered, and matter. Our guest next week will pick up that theme. She's someone who spends hours traveling through the Oxford English Dictionary, reading words and reading words about words. And it shows in her writing and her thoughts. I had so much fun talking to her and I learned so much. I need to put together a holiday buying list for you. Dear listeners, the guests we've had this year and these wonderful books, let's all just buy books this year. Okay? Are you with me? Books for us, books for our friends, books for our family, right? Put Farrah Jasmine Griffin's book, Read Until You Understand, on your list. I promise you won't be disappointed. You'll hear her next week here on the History of Literature and the Treasure Island remix that we heard from C.B. Lee. That should go on your list. A Clash of Steel. And, of course... The Little Women remix, So Many Beginnings, by today's guest, Bethany C. Morrow. We'll have our talk with her coming up after this. Okay, joining me now is Bethany C. Morrow, an indie bestselling author who writes for adult and teen audiences in genres ranging from speculative literary to contemporary fantasy to historical. She's been named by USA Today as one of 100 black novelists and fiction writers you should read. Her new book, So Many Beginnings, is a Little Women remix starring four black sisters coming of age during the American Civil War. Bethany C. Morrow, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to hear all about Little Women and the work of remixing it into So Many Beginnings. But let's start with you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California in Sacramento, the capital city. Mm -hmm. And I I went to, I stayed in California through university. I went to the University of California at Santa Cruz for for undergrad. Right. And what kind of childhood did you have? And I'm, I'm mainly wondering where books fit in. Were you someone who stayed up all night reading under the covers with a flashlight or... What did books mean to you? I don't think I ever did that. I think that's such an interesting uh, <laughs> cliche. I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever did that. I did read a lot. I have several siblings. Mm. Um, there were five of us growing up in the house at the same time, and I do remember walking to different public libraries, which now feels. So, I mean, it's one of those things that lets you know that the world has significantly changed since you were a child. Um, Mm. Because I I just remember going to, we never went to like the same library. It was part of the fun to go to a different neighborhood library, which which lets you know how many there were. Mm. Of course, it's the capital city. And so I'm sure that's not, that wasn't true for every, you know, medium sized city in California. But summers were definitely about the library. I remember my sister Jennifer and I one summer had a uh, a contest to see who could read the most books in a single day. And I'm pretty sure she won with eight <laughs> and I stopped at seven. <laughs> but I, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have considered myself one of, you know, a person who was quote unquote happier among books. Mm, mm-hmm. I was very, very gregarious at a lot of things I liked to do and reading and writing was, uh, or two of them. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you weren't someone who, 
had a hard time socially or or felt like you yeah. were alone except when you were in the library in the company of characters but it was more of a you had a, a zest for life and exuberance that led you to seek out these other worlds maybe yeah i mean i just liked reading yeah <laughs> so it was you know we went to private schools and and uh you know you had to be reading in in preschool and stuff and i mean it's one of those like superpowers that if you have it, of course you're going to use it. So yeah. we, we just read a lot. We had a lot of books in the house. We had, you know, I, again, I, I'm an early eighties baby. So we had the entire encyclopedia Britannica collection and we used to, I mean, this is probably dorkier than any reading <laughs> under a, a cover story, but we would just do state reports during the summer mm. just because we had these you know these resources and we would just choose something and I, I literally just mean my siblings and I at home and my mother would read them yeah I'm sure she didn't really read them because I mean that's a little much <laughs> to force your parent to read academic stuff during the summer yeah. give us a grade uh, but it was their own <laughs> fault because they had all of these academic books yeah. and these nonfiction books all over the house. So we used them. <laughs> so you would just pick out a state that you that caught your attention for some reason in Florida or yep. Iowa and say, we're going to write a report on the uh, yep. the exports or the, <laughs> the crops that they grow and the main historical buildings and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And it was so much more difficult then, of course, because there was no Internet at that point. So it's not like you could just go to Wikipedia and be like, right, OK, right. what are the demographics like you had to you know, you you actually had to go to the library or like I said, to these books that that came out every year, which when you think about it, like, my goodness, um, from a consumption perspective, these these books came out regularly because they're printed books and they would quickly be inaccurate. Yeah. Right. So doing these reports was so much more involved because you had to collate all of this as recent information as you could, as you could find that was already published or in a newspaper or something. Yeah. Were you also into theater and acting out plays and skits and things? Oh, yes. yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, we did, we did radio shows. We did vaudevillian performances for all of our parents' anniversaries. We, um, my father gave us a video camera. Um, and so we made music videos. Mm. We made, the, the most interesting thing that we did was make broadcast news shows. And I, it's interesting because <laughs> it didn't occur to us to make up news. Yeah. So these things were dreadfully boring to watch back <laughs> because we were literally just telling you the news. Like we were literally just yeah. reading the news. But the production and all that kind of, most of the stuff that we did with the video camera, the, the thrill was in the production. We didn't so much watch it back because even our music videos were... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they were largely jumping on the bed. <laughs> so. I like that you were using real news. So you weren't doing a satire or trying to be nope. funny. It was uh, you had nope. some journalistic integrity. We were serious children. We were extremely serious children. And like I said, I, I, I remember one time trying to watch. We didn't get into satire until junior high, probably in high school, because then you could do video book reports and mm. our book reports. And we were, I, I maintain that I was the only person in any of these honors classes who did this. Whenever we did book reports, we did commercial breaks. Mm. So, right. <laughs> so my class <laughs> loved watching my book reports, but that's because like 50 to 60% of it was just going to be us making fun of commercials. <laughs> And when you were doing the news, were you doing world events and, and you know, national news or were you doing news yeah. of stuff that was happening around the house or down the block or something? Nope, nope, nope. We were doing national, national news. news. <laughs> we were reporting on, you know, what you had would have already gotten from the daily newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, whatever other newspaper my father had. And then, <laughs> you know, news stories from the evening news the night before. <laughs> I have a newspaper that I wrote when I was in kindergarten, and my mom kept it, of course, as mothers would for something like that. And it, the main thing that I had on, that I had written on there was Benedict Arnold was a traitor. That was the the headline, and that's about as breaking, far as I got. Yeah, breaking, breaking news. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, so it was kind of a natural thing then for you to be creative, but do you remember when you started writing or when you thought that 
that you could do this and actually pull it off and become a published author? Again, it just sort of, I thought that all along. And I do remember the first time someone outside of my house picked up on it and thought it was, and that was kind of more interesting because in my house it was like, yeah, Hmm. yeah, (laughs) sure. Uh, Why not? That's, I mean, yeah, that, that tracks. But I remember my second grade teacher I'd written, I I always wrote short stories. And of course, now that would really be flash, flash fiction. Um, yeah. you know, very, very short stories. And I remember for a back to school night, she taped one of my recent short stories, which was about a deer. She taped it to the top of my desk and she made sure to talk to my parents about it when they came in. And she was like, I don't know if you know this, but Bethany writes stories mm. and my parents, who, by the way, you know, had multiple children and were quite used to my antics, including having to watch boring newscasts that I produced. They did not respond. My recollection is they did not respond the way that she felt they should have responded, Mm. like they should have been shocked and bowled over and stuff. And they're like, right. (laughs) And she was like, well, do you want to read the short story? My dad's like, yeah, I see it. She was very she was very confused, I think, because yeah. To her, it was like this is miraculous, right. and my parents were like, "Uh huh." Right, and you're you're not are you you're not the oldest? No. Yeah. No. See, that's what's so interesting, and I'm coming at this from the perspective of a parent as well. That a younger sibling, you know, you sort of you you naturally think that your oldest is forging all this new ground and everything, but when the younger ones come along, it's like, oh yeah, well they're you know, so they're they're writing and. Well, my- and my older sister wasn't nobody else was writing. Oh, it was okay. just they were very accustomed to it. Yeah. Like they had to see this stuff all the time. Right. right. I think my teacher thought that I had just started doing it. Yeah. And my parents were like, no, yeah, we got it. We're. Yeah. <laughs> who do you think has to read these at home? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But what you can miss as a parent is you you don't know how to compare the kids against their peers. That's what teachers are so right, useful yeah. for, you know, that it's like, <laughs> right. no, no, this is really standing out the way she's writing these, you know, you, as a parent, you, you don't know if, well, you know, maybe half the class is doing that, but obviously for your teacher, your work was either, either the fact that you were doing it or it was of such a uh, showing such early promise that it really led her to do that. So did that get back to you in some way? Yeah. I mean, I was there. I was, <laughs> I was standing there. Oh, while oh she you was, were there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we would go to the class with our, with our parents. Yeah. I was there. I just, I, that's what I mean. I think for me, it was like, Oh, oh so this yeah. is a big deal outside of my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 For, for other people, this seems to be a big deal. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful that it, it gave you that confidence or just the idea that, this could be a thing. This could be something that, and then it did become a thing for you. Yeah. I mean, again, I didn't, it wasn't a question of whether it was going to be a thing to me. Mm-hmm. It was literally just a recognition that like, this is what the outside of my house thinks of this sort of thing, yeah. which the most important thing to me was the inside my house. So, right, right. <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, I'm a writer. Why is this weird? But I, yeah, I, I struggle with, I know when people try to make sense of it by having like a, okay, so this external thing did this. And I'm like, no, it was literally just the first time that I saw the external thing, I was already the person that I was like, and I was already doing what I was doing. And I'd already, I just assumed, well, this is, this is going to happen. That's what probably caused the most difficulty was not understanding that you had to do something to make that happen necessarily, because I was like, this is who I am. Right. Therefore it will just happen. Right. Was it, smooth sailing from then on? Or were there points where it seemed like, did you face any rejection at some point or any point where you doubted yourself? Yeah, I didn't ever doubt myself again. That's just not me. But I remember the first time and this honestly, if we're if we're being really honest, it happened very early anyway. But the first time that I had a teacher who was like, okay, I need to I want to show you what your next steps might look like was actually again in junior high. And it was, and I talk about her all the time. Her name was Elizabeth Stanley, and she was my gate ELA teacher for seventh and eighth grade. And she wrote for Voyager Star Trek episodes. And I found this out because I watched Star Trek with my family. 
And I confronted her about it, and she was, for some reason, she was very surprised. <laughs> number one, I guess Elizabeth Stanley, as I've said before, is not the most uncommon of names. So yeah. maybe she thought nobody would put it together. But um, my family were Trekkies, so there was no way that somebody was going to have a name that was exactly the same as my teacher, and I wasn't going to say anything. Wow. So I remember approaching her. Yeah. And she was just kind of taken aback that I a, watched it or be cared. And and I was like, oh, yeah, because I'm a writer. And again, she was my ELA teacher. So she was like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and so she started a writing club after school. And she taught me how to write query letters. She taught me. And now, again, this is this is in the 90s, in the early 90s. So you had these books of what is it writer's marketplace and different again books that are published on an annual basis that have you know that list all of the literary agencies and the different literary agents and of course things can be out of right, right. date by the time you get them and everything so it's I, I always say everything she taught me was soon obsolete but not the fact that she had taught me like mm. not the fact yeah. That this professional writer was like, this is an industry and there is a right way to approach it. And there is a, you know, and there was a formality to it. Right. And all of that was extremely important because it was, like I said, the first time that I realized this is an outside thing because I was used to, I want to make something. I want to produce something uh, for visual. I want to produce something for quote unquote radio, because this was, you know, cassette tapes in the car. If I want to do it, I just did it. And mm -hmm. if I want and I, if I want to get my siblings to do a play with me, then we just do it. And there's no, you know, it was very fluid and very organic. There were no gatekeepers. There were no rubrics, you know, and that was extremely important, I think, to me as a creative to to recognize not to give that kind of power to to industries and to other people. Mm. But mm -hmm. it also but it also meant that it was it was a very big education for a professional writer to to let me in on all of that. So that's when I started realizing that I would need to query that I would need to get a literary agent, all of that stuff. I didn't start doing to my recollection, I didn't start trying to do that in earnest until probably my freshman year of university. So I was writing books in high school, but I was in IB, I was in marching band, I was a captain of the drill team, and I was uh, vice president of BSU, and I was senior editor of the newspaper, and section leader, and all this other stuff. So, I mean, I was writing books, but I certainly wasn't thinking, oh, I have to get an agent. Right. And it also wasn't a world where you saw people doing that. Again, the internet was very, very, very new. We were still doing dial-up AOL and yeah. it wasn't like I was exposed to a bunch of people, particularly my age. It was still very much the idea that this is for when you're an adult. This is what I'm going to do when I'm an adult. It wasn't, right, right. It was, oh, I got to I got to start making moves for this right now. It wasn't that kind of grind hustle culture that we unfortunately have now. Yeah. Which I'm very pleased about because it means that I spent high school doing high school yeah. and, and pursuing all of the things that I wanted to do. And I didn't feel like I was wasting time. I didn't feel like I was losing time. It was, you know, careers for later. Right. Okay. So let's get to Little Women. And I'm curious if it was your idea, how it worked. Did you, were you approached to do the series and then you selected the work or did someone come to you and say, we thought Little Women might be a good book for the series to remix or how did that happen? Emily Settle, who is an editor at File and Friends, came to me, well, came to my agent uh, because she followed me on Twitter and I, I'm pretty sure she would have seen the recent or recent at that time tweets that I had done about my, you know, complete exhaustion with yet another Little Women adaptation hmm. that yet again was just four different white girls and how many times we were adapting the same quote unquote universal stories, but never doing it differently yeah. and never including other people. And I was saying it was becoming one of those properties that was like a shield for white nationalism um, and white supremacy because in 2019 thankfully there was some rustling about how are you making a whole movie with like 100% white people in 2019 right but there are ways to get around that of course if you do a quote-unquote classic or you do something that's really mm. really really um, specific in the American imagination like Little Women that has always been lily white and has 
you know, gotten away with it, I think, because of the mythology of the northern abolitionist sympathizer. For some reason, people weren't questioning why you keep doing this. And is this a way for you to excuse yourself from being involved in the current and very overdue discourse? Right. And particularly because having grown up in the 90s and been very into uh, Winona Ryder's 1994 Little Women, I thought it was kind of laughable that you have a movie or a, or a book with the quote unquote backdrop of the Civil War, the American Civil War, and you have a family that's, you know, fighting on the quote unquote right side and you use the word abolitionist somewhere in there and there are no non-white people at all. Yeah. So I, so I thought this book is a joke, like this story is a joke. And so when Emily came and asked me to write it, she was doing that based on knowing very clearly who I am <laughs> yeah. and, and what my position would be. And so she asked me if I'd be willing to remix Little Women as the second book in the, at the time it was called Reclaimed Classics. And eventually I suggested that it be changed to remixed because we're not reclaiming something. We are talking about things that we were intentionally excluded from. We're talking about a canon that is intentionally, there's, you know, there's no accidental aspect of it. And I'm also not reclaiming something because it was never intended for me. It wasn't mine to begin with. Yeah. The story, the real story of so many beginnings, the real story of the American Civil War, the real story of abolitionism, number one is a lot more nuanced, but uh, number two, of course, is mine and does apply and belong to me. So that's very different, but Little Women had nothing to do with me. So we did change it, of course, to remixed classics, but I, my stipulation was just, you know, I needed to know, we had one phone call at the beginning and, and I asked her, what are your expectations? Because if you think that I'm gonna retell the story, I'm not. And if you think that I'm gonna follow the plot or even read Little Women, I'm not. And part of being indoctrinated and having something be part of the American mythology and imagination is that I didn't even have to read Little Women to have a, a very clear idea of what Little Women is because it's been shoved down my throat all of my life. I've, I've been It's been forced upon me long enough that I did not read the book. So were you concerned that an idea that might have been in an editor's mind would be well, let's basically keep Little Women, but we'll introduce some Black characters, maybe give them some some more awareness or give them some Black friends, or we'll, but we, we basically want to keep it in New England. We want to sort of just freshen it up with uh, some better casting, so to speak. No, because that was the phone call was, yeah. do you have any uh, presumptions about what I might do or anything that you think I would have to do? Because the answer is no. And Number one, of course, they wanted the main characters to be Black American girls. That was the whole point. But I told her immediately, it's going to be set in the South. We're not trying to escape. Black people don't have to try to escape enslavement because it's not our shame, it's your shame. So it's not going to be set in the North where you can safely keep most of the Civil War away. And it's going to involve people who were recently enslaved. It's going to be at a freed people colony. You know, I basically said that there's one way that I would ever do this. And if it's, it's, if I'm doing it, you're not doing it, I'm doing it. Yeah. That, I guess that's what my question was, was if you had that concern before you had that phone call. No, uh, because and, there, there would have been no, you, you have to understand me as a person, there would right. have been, there's no concern because it would have been a no. Right. I, I get it. I, I guess I'm just, I'm trying to trace through what what could have been the thing that would have led you to say no, and it would have been an editor having an idea like that for the series. Yeah. Anything short of them saying, this is what you are, are you willing to do this? If you ask me if I'm willing to do it, then you're going to see what I do. You, you're not going to tell me what to do. Right. So tell us about what was happening on Roanoke Island and why that appealed to you as the setting for the book. The interesting thing is that while we have this mythos you know, that we pretend is history, a discipline of history, which is really a curated imagination. And while that is just constantly in the background and constantly uh, messaging that we're receiving, as a Black American, I also have an oral curricula that I glean from family, that I hear, that, you know, I always say part of the amazingness of being black American. And, and part of the reason I love Twitter so much is it doesn't matter what part of the country you're from. It doesn't matter what your regional heritage is. 
if you go on Twitter and you say, did you guys ever do such and such? Or did you guys ever watch such and such? You're going to have black Americans from literally anywhere in the country who are going to have done exactly that and have mm -hmm. watched exactly that. And that's part of the grace, I should say, because it's not a blessing, but the grace that comes from having always had to forge our own space artistically and, and everything else is that we sort of, again, follow the same curriculum. We watched the movies that 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 people like us were able to create. We listened to the music. We watched the shows, Gullah Gullah Island. And, you know, there, there's just so much overlap of what Black Americans, particularly of the same generation or, or, or near generations, experienced. But part of what was so haunting about this particular project is I told Emily on the phone that I was going to set it at the Freed People Calling It Roanoke Island. And then after the phone call, I had to try to figure out how I knew that it existed mm. because I didn't learn it in school. Of course, nobody did. And I, I had no idea. I, and I still don't. I still wouldn't be able to track when and where I heard of it. Yeah. My parents were very big PBS people. We were very much, you know, if there was a special, if there was... Black History Month or anything, we, you know, we would watch it, we would listen to it, we would read it. So I just assume that I had to have picked it up that way. Yeah. Um, and so then I had to go try to find actual information about it because I, I mean, I knew specifically where it was. It wasn't like, oh, a free people colony. It was like the Roanoke Island free people colony. Yeah. And so after, after the phone call and after telling her that that is where it was going to be set, I went to find historical record of it and I found one book, which was by Patricia C. Click, Time Full of Trial. And it was literally about the entire lifespan of the, the Roanoke Island Free People Colony. And mm. it was at once devastating that there was both so much information because if you get this book and I really, really want people to get this book, I see that it has gotten ridiculously expensive um i don't i don't know why that is but uh, i bought it and it was a normal price and now every time someone comes back to me they're telling me that it's too expensive so i'm not really sure what's going on but i do see how much of this information was in the world and was you know because we, we'll say like oh there was so little information it's not that there was so little information it's so little accessible and presented information because Patricia and her scholarship was able to call so much, so much information. And then you have to know exactly what you're looking for, unfortunately, as well. Again, because it's not, it's not presented, it's not celebrated, it's not preserved on purpose. Um, but once I knew time periods and things about the American Colonization Society and when that was happening, I was able to then go to things like the Library of Congress and find other correspondences and things like that. And then going to JSTOR, like I've said a million times, and looking for papers about the outer banks during the Civil War. And, you know, none of them were expressly about the free people population, which is laughable because it's such an extraordinary and such a nationally recognized and noticed phenomenon. So even that, you know, you can, you, if you look for it, you start to see evidence of its burial. You can't ignore the intentionality of this information being buried and of it being excluded and of it being ignored. You can't, you can't ignore it when you start looking for it because People go to great lengths. People go to great lengths to ignore something that absolutely is pertinent to what you're talking about, but you don't want it to be necessarily. So I'm going to have to go through all of your very explicit, like academic end notes that were very extensive, but they weren't in your actual paper. Like right. you, you somehow wrote about the Outer Banks in this time period and somehow kept it out of the main paper. But if I read all the end notes, I can find a bunch of information. It was just, it was really interesting and galling, you know, looking at that sort of thing. Yeah. And do you think that it was left out of history because uh, historians didn't want to acknowledge that it had happened or because of the way that it ended? All of that. I mean, yeah. it doesn't match the mythology. It doesn't match the eugenics argument. It doesn't match white supremacy. It doesn't, you know, if 
a day after I take my foot off your neck, you build a thriving, profitable colony, then the problem has been me, not you. Right. And think about it this way. Plantation sites have been preserved. Free people colony sites were not. Right. How does that impact the sociology of this country? How does that impact the mythology? How does that impact the population that you are? Because it's not enough to say, okay, we don't want white people to know about this. That's easy enough to do. You just train white people to be self-centered and and that's quite easy. They're not going to go out looking for it. Stereotypes I always maintain are targeted at the demographic that they're about. You are trying to convince me that this is all there is to my story. You're trying to keep me from replicating the behavior and the and the successes and the resilience of my ancestors. You're trying to keep me from understanding who I am. That's a lot more powerful than lying to someone else about me. Right. And what do you feel like you can demonstrate in your book that helps to correct the historical record for the young people who are reading? Is it by having these four sisters... I'm struggling to figure out how to formulate the question, I guess. But um, people are constantly trying to think of like, what can I show that's going to disprove this mythology? I don't have to do any of that. That's not my job. Right. I'm literally telling you and proving to you that it was a myth. I don't I don't have to. You know, there's this very troubling assumption that I've got to disprove and convince someone of something. I'm literally just telling you the truth. All you have to know is is that there is a truth and that you have been lied to. And then you are responsible to figure out what does it mean that I've been lied to? What does it mean that I've been complicit in this delusion? What does it mean that I think I know things that I couldn't possibly know? What does that mean for me? Like, it's, it's not my job to prove my humanity or dignity to anyone. Right. So what with the four sisters appealed to you about telling their story? I mean, I have sisters. It was it was really it, it was it was literally I am taking advantage of an undue, at least partially undue reverence that the United States, particularly the United States education system has with little women. I am Trojan horsing the truth into a story that I know you're going to be drawn to because you've been taught to be drawn to it because you've been, you know, you've been encouraged to be drawn to it. It's been, it's been presented and presented and presented and presented to you exhaustively. So this is a story where I can tell the, literally just tell the story I wanted to tell with absolutely no attempt to make it quote unquote match or honor Little Women, and people will make those connections themselves because they are so reverent of Little Women, because they are so familiar with the story. So it's interesting to to have people talk about like what I did to to maintain the integrity of a book I didn't read, because it, it just goes to show that this is the whole reason that you show someone else first and frequently is that no matter what comes after it in the public's mind, this other thing will always be it will always set the tone. And I think it's pretty impossible to do that with so many beginnings. And I think it's going to make a lot of people extremely uncomfortable because you're going to have to work overtime. It's going to be like Olympic stretching to, to try to force it to quote unquote honor uh, something it doesn't honor, but it's an opportunity for me to tell a story I was going to tell anyway. Um, And to tell a story that needs telling and to tell a history and expose a history that needs that needs telling and what is becoming a grand tradition, uh, a grand renaissance in for, for black creators from Watchmen to Lovecraft country, you know, in saying, okay, here's a property that you revere, that you enjoy. And now I'm going to make it true. Now I'm going to tell you something that you should have known that a part of you does know, but that you've been allowed to ignore just the first episode of Watchmen just the first episode of Lovecraft Country, when everyone is Googling, like, are sundown towns real? And did Tulsa massacre really happen? And it's like, too many people were involved in it for everybody to be asking if, it, if it's real. It, it's, it's part of a pattern. Tulsa wasn't the only massacre. It happened all over North America, period. And so this delusion that people have been allowed to to cling to and this ignorance, this claim of ignorance, it doesn't make any sense when I, a 30 something year old black American woman said Roanoke 
island free people colony before I knew where I knew it from. Right. I'm not the only one with an oral tradition. I'm not the only one with with the with the sort of clandestine curriculum. Someone's grandparents did those things. Someone's family was proud of that. Someone knows that they were a part of this. So it's really interesting. I'm, I think it's the most, it's the tenderest story that I've probably written. It's also the most incisive story that I've, that I've ever written. And I think it, it'll be very disarming to people because of that. But uh, what's, what's really important is to basically let people challenge themselves. As hard as someone will try to make it about Louisa May Alcott, what are you going to do with all of the American history that's involved that you weren't taught? Like, how do you reconcile that? Do you get the sense that that will happen? It'll happen as long as I'm talking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it'll happen with the discussion guide that I wrote. It'll, you know, I think that anytime you show, tell the truth, it's going to happen. People might not like that it's going to happen and they might like to downplay the likelihood of it happening. But there's a whole reason that there are crusades going on right now to try to make it illegal to teach this sort of thing. Because as soon as you can only bury the truth for so long. I guess that's right. But on the other hand, if it's been buried for 150 years, uh, I worry that it, you know, I'd like to be more optimistic than that. But have we turned a corner or do you think we're we're still, uh, you know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we'll be in the same place that we are now? I don't. I think that there's always this desire to talk about turning corners and have we made progress. You would know that. Have you made progress? I'm not talking about the entire what is proposed to be the American consciousness. I'm not concerned with that because that's part of the mythology. I know that I knew about something that I wasn't taught in school. And I know that I'm not the only person. So I, too, am part of the American imagination. I decide that this is now part of the American imagination. Yeah. Well, I guess when you said, you know, you can only bury the truth for so long, it just made me think if the truth has been buried until now. But has it? Because Patricia C. Click wrote Time Full of Trial. Okay. So, right? You you can't really bury the truth for very okay. long at all. Right. Now, if you want to talk about what you have allowed to be mainstream, but this information didn't wither. This information didn't cease to be true. This information didn't cease to be orally passed on. So it was always here. It's the it's the it's the intentional sociological work and 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 political work of keeping it from being reverenced, keeping it from being taught. And you circumvent that as soon as you put it into literature. And that's the thing is when I looked for this, I found a nonfiction academic text about it. Well, now it's a young adult fictional text. Right. Which will will help surface it in a different way for different people and a different audience. Absolutely. Just like Watchmen, just like Lovecraft Country. You know, I I think that it's very interesting. The, The necessity to either take credit for all having turned a corner or to say, okay, nothing has to happen because, of course, it couldn't happen. It's too big of a scale. All of that sort of, I don't know if it's really apathy, but all of it allows for stagnation. And I'm more for, for, for when I'm working, I'm kind of, I'm concerned with personal responsibility because I have an opportunity to change something about this. I, as a student of sociology, understand what sociology is and what it's for and how powerful it is and how powerful therefore literature and entertainment are. So I know that there's something that I can do. Right. And do you have another project in mind? What do you turn to next after this? I have, a, I have another book coming out in February that's already written. So it's, <laughs> yeah. as with all professional writers, I'm multiple projects beyond uh, the writing of this one, the publishing of this one. But I, I will always be, I will always be challenging and indicting the American imagination. You know, that's just the work that I do. It doesn't mean that it's it doesn't mean that my work is not art and it doesn't mean that it's not uh, speculative sometimes and and far reaching, you know, in terms of science fiction and everything. But it would be impossible to be saturated in, you know, the kind of traumatic, destructive, oppressive society that I'm in and not have that. And the fact that I'm an extremely 
I'm an extremely contrarian person, and I'm a person who's extremely about personal and and social liberation, it would be impossible for that stuff not to be reflected in my work. And I don't have to really try to make that happen, honestly. Um, this was probably the most intentional work that I've ever done, and that's because of the very extensive historical research aspect of it. But the commentary is easy to come by. Okay, well, let's leave things there. So Many Beginnings, the Little Women remix by Bethany C. Morrow is available now. Bethany C. Morrow, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Bethany C. Morrow for joining me. Her book is available now at bookstores everywhere. Do check it out. It's called So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. And check out the play by our first guest, Scott Carter. My thanks to him as well for joining me. His play is called Discord, and it's streaming through December 19th by the Philadelphia Lantern Theater Company. Next week, we're going to visit a different Jefferson. Not Thomas this time, but another great American Jefferson. I will leave that one to your imagination. For now, as we sail forth on our journey through literature and learning. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.